0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, coming to you from the studios of the Coming Home Network. I'm joined as usual by my good friend, Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, we're, our, our attempt today and next week is to finish up our long study of Romans. And again, let me, I want to thank you for those of you that have listened and, and uh, sent encouraging emails and, and such. Uh, and those of you that are turning in the first time, you can go to deepinscripture.com and listen to all the old programs we've had for n- a number of years. Uh, but Ken and I have been just, Ken, we've only been doing Romans for about six months, but it may have seemed like six years, but it's only been, <laughs> uh, you know, a short time. We'd like to finish it up uh, in the next, so there's lots of things in, in the last chapters of Romans that we could spend more time on, but we'd like to, to move it to the end now. In many ways, we've, we've gotten beyond the deep theological and, and praxis aspects of the book of Romans. And now we're moving into uh, the final section where Paul's talking about his upcoming plans, uh, his desire to join with the uh, Jewish and Gentile convert Christians in Rome. Uh, He's telling their plans. He's also talked why he has been delayed. One of the main reasons is just how he understands his mission, which he he believes that not only is his ministry to non-Catholic, excuse me, (laughs) to non-Jews, to Gentiles that uh, this mission to non-Gentiles, to, non- to non-Jews, is a, a, in some sense a wider expanse than Peter's call, which was to be an apostle to the Jews. Uh, Peter's call, if his call is to the Jews, is to those Jewish um, communities around the Mediterranean, where, where Paul's mission to the non-Jews is as far as the world expands. Uh, There will be Jews in Britain and wherever, but mostly non-Jews. So many of these people to whom Paul's going are uh, completely unfamiliar, not just with Jesus Christ and his story and resurrection, but unfamiliar with the Old Testament salvation history. So how's Paul going to tell these people about Jesus Christ? That's his mission. And the unique part of his mission, which he admits in the, uh, the middle of chapter 15, is that he believes that the Holy Spirit has called him not to build on foundations where someone else has already come. The, the 12 apostles have been sent forth. Uh, and he believes he's not going to go somewhere where one of them has, has already planted the gospel. He basically believes this is the seeds have been planted. He wants to go where the seeds have not been planted, and he admits, in fact, in um, one of the verses we covered last week uh, in uh, Romans 15 leading up to verse 24, where he believes he's every place he's been has been covered, um, and so now it's his time to move on, but he's got a task first, and we're going to talk about that first in Romans 15, 25 through 29, He's going to talk first about a task that he believes God has called him and the Christians to do in terms of taking care of other Christians. And then we'll look at verse 30 and 33 as he talks again about coming to visit the Romans, but he's asking them for their prayers for a unique purpose. And then we're going to move on into the, the closing of the of the epistle in chapter 16. Ken, I, I will throw it back to you before we jump into things. I'm wondering if for the sake of our audience, you want to put this in the context of the entire letter.
1: Well, I think you've done a great job already, Marcus, except I might just add that um, when we're coming to the end of an epistle like this, uh, perhaps uh, Paul's greatest of epistle, we have to remember two things. One is that in writing to a very specific community, of people, Paul is concerned about that situation. We're going to see in chapter 16 in just a moment that he knew a lot more about the uh, city and the church in Rome than than we might think, and that that illuminates what he says earlier, and maybe we can put that in a new light at that moment. The second thing is that, <clears throat> that reading Paul's theology that is his his teaching about God and Christ and church and the sacraments and all of that. The these this is something like a, an iceberg. When you're when you're if you were out on the ocean and you were approaching the North Pole or approaching Antarctica or Antarctica, you would see the icebergs jutting up from them. But what you're seeing is only one fourth of what's there, there's three-fourths of it that are submerged under water. The theology of Paul is submerged under the water, but it just surfaces to us. And so what we have to do is we have to infer what that theology is. When we do that, we have to be on the one hand very careful, but two, we can become very confident when we use all of Paul's epistles, we can come to understand what he's basically teaching. And what he comes back to at the very end, in the last few verses of chapter 16, at the very end of the letter, is the gospel. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? And what is he going to be preaching? And it's this great revelation that God has given to the world of who his only begotten son is. And so what Paul's reminding us is basically what Luke wrote in Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no other name except that of Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, the, <laughs> the, the iceberg analogy, Ken, is so wonderful uh, uh, because what that addresses, and, and, and audience, one of our main goals for doing this program was to encourage you to consider doing a Bible study with friends and family or your local parish, to have the courage to do that, and you've do the book of romans and, and there's lots of resources out there as we've mentioned but you could also listen to our week by week program as a background for you to sit down and share and we've tried not to be academic we want to be as practical and pastoral as we can but this idea of the of the iceberg can is so true because you know that the stuff that's under the water also represents interpretation
1: Yes, that's right.
0: Of what Paul says in his little nugget, and the question is, does it apply to us, or how does it apply? Was he only writing something directly to somebody in Rome at that time, or was he saying something universal, normative, and and a good example of that? Mm. When we reach the end of the letter of Romans, if you have the privilege and the ability and go back and look at uh, research... Um, the early copies of the book of Romans, you'll find that many scholars say that the book of Romans jumps from chapter 1533 all the way to chapter 1625, without most of chapter 16. And so there have been some scholars saying that this was added, this was another letter, and so this is a part of the iceberg that they're wondering you know is this normative is it long term does it make a difference how do we explain the absence and and part of the issue is that when when john and james and peter and paul wrote their letters to churches some of what they were writing was intended to be shared forever and some of that may have been on the end of a letter, this is more directly in a local situation. And a good example that can always cracks me up is that the close, as you get to the end of First Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, hey, no longer drink any water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Hmm. Well, is that a universal command for every Christian? Uh, <laughs> or was that just something that Paul thought of for the second and told his secretary, hey, tell this to Timothy. I, I, I just heard this from another person. This might help Timothy's problem that I hadn't heard about. Drink a little yeah. wine with that water. you yeah. know." So all these things in the end of Romans, are they for all of us? Or were they for those specific people at that time? And how do we interpret that? And that's why Christ gave us a church. It's not up to us to decide whether that applies or not, because some of the things that Paul talks about, I mean, we, we may not want to hear. And we might want to say, nah, that was for those folk. Uh, well, how do we decide that? You know, I think of some good examples in, in Corinthians, Ken, where he's telling ladies they got to be wearing their hair nets, and, 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 and men are, you know, you're not to be cutting your hair and, uh, and women shouldn't be speaking in the church. Well, wait a second. Was Paul only talking about then or was he talking about now? And how do we decide which things apply then and now? And Ken, you know, that's what divide Christian churches one from another.
1: Well, you're you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, almost all uh, churches through time have recognized that Paul is giving permission maybe to women to wear the covering over their head, but not requiring it. It was dealing with a specific situation, but it does reflect the, the structure of reality that, that God has given where... Um, were wiser to be submissive to their husbands. Paul talks about that in another context. Um, However, that example can be used as a justification for saying, well, you see, what the Bible says about homosexuality, or what it says about death and abortion or whatever, is no longer relevant, you see. And that's how liberal Protestant Christianity justifies its, you know, throwing out the moral law, uh, of the Bible. That's why we need, um, that's why we need a church to help us. And traditionally Protestants, even in their own churches recognize the need of that for sentence and for councils and so forth and so on. But that's why there were councils because there were these different interpretations of scripture in the ancient church. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with that right now and translating the the letters or the, um, the works of, uh, St. Cyprian because they had councils in North Africa and Carthage because they were disagreed among themselves about how this applies, how Scripture applies to this particular situation.
0: All the early heresies were basically this very issue, you know. Yeah. And as we look at today's passage, we're going to see one of the, the side questions is, you know, does Paul, just from this little data, we might ask the question, does Paul believe in the Trinity? How mm-hmm. does he understand the Trinity? Is it assumed because he, he's referring to it in the end of this letter? But how does he understand it, uh, and is it something that later the church had to define more clearly because of people that took scriptures to mean differently than Paul intended? So with all that as a background, let's jump into it. Ken, I'm going to read verse 25 through 29. We didn't quite finish chapter 15 last time. Let me read it really quickly, and then let's talk about the significance of of Paul's message to the Christians at Rome he says at present however I am going to Jerusalem with aid for the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem they were pleased to do it and indeed they are in debt to them for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been raised, I shall go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So, uh, Ken, as we... A little bit of background here. I mean, we could spend time pointing out in First Thessalonians and Second Corinthians, uh, chapters eight and nine, and Acts chapter nineteen, the background to this collection of the saints. Uh, in verse twenty-six, when he's saying Macedonia and Achaia, he's basically referring to what he referred to in Thessalonians and First Thessalonians and in Second Corinth. So, in other words, his plea in in First this um, Thessalonians and in 2nd Corinth were successful. He had a good fundraising effort and now he's got some funds to take with them uh, to the holy ones in Jerusalem. He's not using the term with a capital S the way it's come to mean over the centuries. He's talking about people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. They're the saints. They're the ones who have dedicated their lives to Jesus. And in Rome they're struggling. And so this really builds on what Paul talks about in Galatians and Ephesians as well as in Romans that we are not individuals saved by Jesus Christ such that our relationship to God is only about me and Jesus. He emphasizes in a continuity with our Lord Jesus Christ which is a continuity of the Old Testament understanding of the church is that when we are baptized we are united in one with every other baptized believer and we have a responsibility one to another and to me one of the most important verses that emphasizes that is in 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 in which he says blessed be the God and Father Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And he goes on to talk more about that, but the point is we are directly connected and responsible one to another.
1: Yeah, that, uh, that, that I think is strengthened by uh, words that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. Uh, where he says that for um, that we were all baptized into one body by one spirit and then he says goes on to say well then this this is because we're all members of one body it's interesting saint Cyprian of Carthage around 255 or so ad says in his commentary on the Lord's prayer we don't pray my father we pray our father because we're automatically members of the church given that we are baptized uh, into Christ and that means that we have both the privilege and the obligations that go with being members of the church so there's this mutual help that is um, expected by God that we give to other people Uh, another example of that Marcus is in uh, Galatians chapter 6 verse 6 where Paul, at the end of the letter to the Galatians, says, "...let him who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches." And this is part of the support of our pastors that we should give them, so they can do the work that they're doing. And and whether they're clerical pastors or lay pastors, like you and I are, sort of in the, in the coming home network. Right. But he says, share what you have, share material goods. Paul is saying in this text back in Romans 15 that you read, that we should share in the material that we should share material blessings with those who have given us spiritual blessings the Jews were the conduit the instrument uh, the people of god who brought the gospel uh, through Christ through the apostles to the gentiles now the gentiles can share with the Jews so it's a wonderful uh, illustration of the very practical consequences of helping one another because we're members of the body of Christ
0: and i don't think and maybe just my aging brain cells. I can't remember whether in Acts or in in other references, Paul or the other writers ever give a detailed reason why the Christians in Jerusalem were going through such a difficult time. I can't remember that. I do know from other readings that because of politics in Rome, in relationship to Judea, that there was um, difficult times for all of I Judea.
1: I can't cite the exact text, but it is in Acts where it says that there was a famine in Judea.
0: Yeah. So we have natural reasons. I think there are also political reasons. But another reason, which connects alpha with the work that we do in the Coming Home Network, you can see it in Acts chapter 6. <coughs> Acts chapter 6, verse 7, when uh, after the, uh, the deacons were appointed to assist the apostles in chapter... Acts 6, 7, it says, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Mm -hmm. Now the point of that is, now just think about it practically. You have these Jews who their whole livelihood was a part of the community, and even priests. The support of their family was was in connection with their Jewish faith. And when they abandon that, or they buy into the sect, which is being slowly rejected in Jerusalem, you have priests that are no longer able to support themselves as priests and their families. And then you have laity, who, um, uh, you know, all of these folk are being rejected by their families and being shunned. And so, besides the famine and and the political problems, you literally have the need for Christians to support other Christians because they are suffering because of their faith. I mean, that's what the Coming Home Network's about. That's why we're here. We help non-Catholic Christians who, when they come into the Catholic Church, sometimes they lose their livelihood. And that's what we're here to
1: help them for. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Let's uh, move on to the next section, Ken. There's so much we can say about that. Verse 30, when he says, I appeal to you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. If anyone ever questions the call for us to pray for one another and the necessity of that, ask for even the communion of saints to be praying for that. Here, Paul admits, matter of fact, the necessity of our prayers for one another as we fulfill the missions that God has called us.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the way that Paul uses this word in verse 30. Synagonizomai is the Greek word it means to struggle along with, in other words, to be a fellow soldier. In the battle in the battle against evil our greatest asset is prayer our greatest asset is to enter into this battle against evil by calling upon the powers of heaven like st. Michael to come and to destroy evil within our world um, I've been thinking about that a lot lately because as I reflect upon where our country is where it has been um, if if there's anybody in our audience out there that might be a little bit discouraged or maybe a lot discouraged about the future of America, um, I think you have a lot of objective reasons to to <laughs> justify your your discouragement. But remember that we are not left our own resources; that God is indeed uh, calling us to live as lights shining in the world, a world of, that is increasingly pagan. But when we do that, is what Paul is saying here to enter into the battle of prayer, that the forces of evil might be vanquished
0: by the light. Ken, I, there's an interesting connection between this call for prayer from Paul and um, the first part of chapter 16, where Paul is, as he begins chapter 16, with all these greetings. But he says in verse 1 of 16, uh, and we'll come back to 33. I know we want to talk about the, the doxology there, but I commend to you our sister Phoebe, uh, a deaconess of the church at Sancreia, that you may receive her in the Lord as befits the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you as she has been a helper of many and of myself as, as well. Mm-hmm. Now the connection is this. Uh, for, uh, Ken, when you were a non-Catholic Presbyterian as I was, I didn't have I didn't understand the value of men and women giving their lives in as celibate servants of the Lord dedicating their right. lives to lock themselves away in a monastery to do nothing but pray. I think what yeah. what's all that Lord about you? Did didn't get that. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know why aren't they get out there and do something? And the point yeah. is That what they are doing is the most important thing in the church, as Paul says in verse 30, (laughs) that they are striving together with all of us, with the church, with one another in prayer. That's what they're doing. You know, the reason the church has survived 2000 years because of the prayers of women like Phoebe.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's the. this is the beauty of the church that that the Catholic church has always recognized. There's the contemplative and the active life. Now the active life, meaning those orders of women and men that go out and actually do things like you know M- Mother Teresa's orders, you know, the Missionaries of Charity, might be the most well known today. But I mean those those kinds of orders of going out and serving uh, people in very practical ways has always been there. But there's also the contemplative life, and that is the life of prayer. That is the life that supports the active life and the gospel by the um the battle together at Paul the Sunaganizomai, this battling together uh, in prayer and that's what our own brother Rex uh, does so beautifully right. for all of us um, mm-hmm. and what all the contemplative orders have done they bring all of that into their own heart and lift it up uh, to the throne of grace Saint Augustine in the fifth century preaches a beautiful sermon about the story of Matthew excuse me in Luke it gets to the end of chapter Ten, where it's the story about Mary and Martha and Jesus is there in their home, and Martha is busy of serving, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and listening and the church has always seen in that text that there is a priority to the contemplative life in the sense that that's our destiny. It doesn't mean that active ministry is not important, but it means that the contemplative is the power behind the active.
0: Well, verse 31 and 32 just remind us that the very practical things of our lives are certainly uh candidates for prayer uh you know lord you know deliver me from what i'm anticipating uh paul says or make sure that the service that i do is is helpful to other people mm-hmm. and may, go, may god open the doors so that i can go to meet with you i mean that's the kind of prayers that we should we can lay before the lord uh, and ask one another to pray for. There's the example right there. Real quickly, Ken, we haven't got much time. Verse 33, the God of peace be with you all. We say something like that flippantly, but what does he mean? What does, you know, mm. through baptism, Christ dwells within us. Through the Eucharist, we receive him into our hearts. What does he mean by the God of peace be with you all?
1: Yeah. Well, it's obviously a, a wish of the, uh, of the most intimate kind. Look up in verse 32. Remember in verse 32, he says, that when I come to you with joy and be refreshed. In other words, that by by this fellowship of human, uh, of those in Christ, the soul is refreshed and in the midst of that, God is there. And what kind of God is God? God is a God of peace. He wants to bring peace and harmony and unanimity to the body of Christ.
0: Jesus promised that wherever two or more gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of you. That's his promise. All right, well, we're going to break down, we'll come back, and we're going to jump into chapter 16 in a little bit, we'll see you then. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do To Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you.
1: What do all these have in common? A former agnostic, a fallen away Catholic, and a once upon a time Protestant. Find out next time on The Journey Home. Marcus Grodai invites pilgrims from all walks of life to share how they made it home to the Catholic Church. The Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com.
0: Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics, helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi with Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, thank you for joining us. I, we're honored if any of you listen to us out there. we we Ken and I, neither of us are claiming that we are the last word on Romans, but we, we love the word and, and we just are grateful for this opportunity to study with you. And I think what would give me the greatest joy is to know if any of you have gotten the courage uh, to start a, a, a scripture study with some friends and maybe if our work has been a help to you. Uh, I mean, Ken, that's really what it's what it's about, is encouraging others uh, uh, to grow in the Lord and, and, and hear the message of the Lord in Scripture. We look at 16, chapter 16 of Romans. Uh, you could easily break it into five sections. You've got verses 1 and 2 where Paul is commending a woman, Phoebe, who's a deaconess, to the church in Rome. So it's like a an introduction letter for, for her. Then in verses 3 through 16, Paul is greeting a, a long list of very close friends in the Lord, fellow disciples, uh, which, as Ken mentioned earlier, uh, is evidence that Paul was not ignorant of things in Rome, not firsthand, but he had lots and lots of of, uh, of firsthand friends who he was in constant communication with. And then verse seventeen, then verse sixteen. I'll just say that he says greet one another with a holy kiss. And of course, that phrase has shaped the Eastern Liturgy and the, and the Western Mass ever since, because that's a part of, of the Sunday uh, uh, liturgy. And then verse 17 through 20, we have uh, a little theological reflection, which I think directly connects to verses 13 and 16, because 13 and 16, on the one hand, he has affirmed a long list of people that are faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ, and verse 17 and 20, he's telling people, now be careful of those that don't follow this faithfulness, and we'll get to that. And then verse 21 through 23, Paul is mentioning those that are with him, one of which is his secretary, who wrote this down as Paul dictated the letter, and that was Tertius. And then finally, in verse 25 through 27, we have the concluding doxology, uh, which we will probably try and spend as much time as we can. But uh, let's go then, Ken, to verse 1 and 2. I'll read it, and then if you would address the the controversy that's here. What, what was the point of this, and what's the controversy? Paul wrote, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, or Phoebe, a diaconess of the church at that you may receive her in the Lord as befits the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a helper of many and of myself as well.
1: Marcus, this uh, passage is uh, pretty straightforward on on the surface of it, except that how you translate the word uh, diakonon here uh, the version that you just read and that, that I have in front of me uh, says that she's a deaconess of the church in uh, Chancheria. Um And the Greek word here is this diakonon, uh, which is a masculine word, which is the word that is applied to those men that are first in the book of Acts. It's applied then in the, let's say, in Philippians, the diakonon would be the deacon. But it's applied to a woman here, which means that it's probably um, then the question, but the question is, uh, is this a office in the church? Is there often an office of deaconess? Or does it just mean as the word deacon means servant of the church of King um, And that's where the, you know, it can be interpreted either way um, a lot of. Modern churches have debated this. Uh, the Lutherans, for example, have long had a history of having deaconesses who are not ordained to the to the holy ministry, as they call it, um, but simply are servants. and I knew a woman like this in the Missouri St. Lutheran Church, who was a uh, an ordained not ordained but a consecrated, you might say, um, deaconess in the church. I think they could marry. I don't think they were forbidden from marrying or anything like that. Um, or is this more like a religious sister that we have in the Catholic Church who takes a vows of poverty, chest, and obedience, belongs to an order, and is set apart consecrated virgin, but not ordained to the priesthood or to the clerical orders like deacon, that, then as deacon, priest, and, and bishop? Um, so that's where the controversy would might might be here.
0: It seems... There's a good example, Ken, that why Scripture alone ain't the answer, because when all you got is yeah. this, what do you do? Uh, and that's why you have all these different Christian traditions interpreting this in a different way. And even today, in the Catholic Church, you're going to have some men and women who are, are want to argue for women to be ordained in the structure, uh, in the position of a deaconess, because they say, see, it says it here. But ignoring the history and we're not going to spend the whole rest of this time we but just to point out that in the fourth century at the first ecumenical council at Nicaea in canon 19 it discusses this in fact after it talks about uh, the receiving of a group in back into the church the Paulianists. Uh, the do they need to be rebaptized? And they say that they do need to be rebaptized. Um, and if any of them who, in the past time, have been numbered among their clergy, should be found blameless and without reproach, let them be rebaptized and ordained by the bishop of the Catholic Church. And this is the fourth century. This is actually before Ken. This is this is fifty some years before the canon of Scripture was finally affirmed by the bishops at Carthage Roman Hippo at councils there. Um, Scripture, of course, is being honored and read in liturgy, but the point is this is early, and you see the structure of the church, the bishops of the Catholic church, and it goes on. And and so these are priests from a non-Catholic Christian group who are converting back to the church, their baptisms were not valid, so they have to be rebaptized. but if they were priests in this other tradition, then they could be ordained. The point is that the church is recognizing these orders. It then goes on to say, likewise in the case of their deaconesses, and generally in the case of those who have been enrolled among their clergy, let the same form be observed. So they're recognizing that there were bishops, There were priests, there were deacons, and there were deaconesses, there were clergy. And same thing, if they come into the church, they can be rebaptized, and they can be in those positions. However, this is, here's the key statement. We we mean by deaconesses, such as have assumed the habit, and who, since they have no imposition of the hands, are to be numbered only among the laity. And Ken, it seems, and we could spend more time on other references, but it seems, just as you've said, that these are women. And this is the powerful, to me, this, is that we see evidence early, early in the church where individual Christians are, are praying to God, Lord, what do you want me to do with your life? And they're sensing from God a call to dedicate them lives to complete service of the Lord, to accept celibacy uh, and poverty, devotion to the church, giving themselves in service there was never any evidence that anyone other than men were or received the laying out of hands to become deacons, priests, or bishops. But there were women who were called to dedicate their lives to service. And the evidence from these early writings is that one of the main reasons they were called was to help other women as they were being baptized. The norm was for f- full immersion in the early church, if that were possible. Well, there were women converts. What do you do with these ladies? So there were women who dedicated themselves to help the women in their catechesis and in their baptism in the early church.
1: We hear about this uh, sort of thing later on in the uh, fourth century. You're reading from the Council of Nicaea, I believe, in, um, in 325. Later, we have a lot of information from St. Jerome's letters. Uh, One of the most extensive collections of letters that we have from in in the ancient Latin language. Um, But in there, he has many letters to women who have taken a private vow of virginity. Some of those women were very wealthy Romans and had given money to (coughs) the support of various monasteries in Rome. The point is that all alone, women have been honored by as they give themselves to the ministry of others to the church to prayer to silence to study whatever it may be they are honored with these vows but they were not considered to be a part of the priestly clergy or the diaconate uh, in the sense of, of being a part of the clergy um, the reason is because as john paul ii said in his uh, encyclical back in, I think it was 1992 or 1993, sacerdotis ordinatio, sacerdotalis ortonatio, in other words, on the admissibility of women in the, in the priestly uh, service, uh, the answer was no, they haven't been because there's never been any precedent uh, for that in the Church. And that's why the Catholic Church today, uh, one of the reasons why it insists because Christ only chose men, and because it's never been a part of the tradition of the church uh, that women are not to be admitted to the priesthood, but that doesn't mean they're not to be admitted to the ministry of the church. For heaven's sakes, I mean, women have sustained the church throughout its great centuries, and so out uh, of these these wonderful you know twenty centuries of the church, they've been in a sense the backbone. So women are to be honored and to be to be uplifted the fact that they're not to be in priesthood is not in any way a criticism or a uh, taking away of something that they legitimately have. It's never been the case but nevertheless they are to be honored as those both mothers in ministry or in, in marriage and women given over to consecrated life.
0: All right. Thank you, Ken. We, again, we because of time we won't study more about this. I think the in terms of Paul's intent, the point was that this letter that he has written and dictated actually to Tertius and is now being sent probably from Corinth to Rome, might be accompanying a group of folk, and one of those people is this woman, Phoebe. Um, In fact, he says, I commend to you our sister, Phoebe. I mean, there we can see the source of how these women got the title sister. I mean, from the earliest days of the church, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Mm-hmm. That's that, you know, that or later he'll, he'll call Mark his son. Peter calls him his son. Well, he's not really a son. He's a son in the Lord. Uh, Timothy is Paul's son in the Lord, but not really in terms of literally, but he's a, a father and son, brother and sister. That's the family in the church. Verses 3 through 16, Ken, I don't think we're going to read through all this. Uh, all these people that Paul knew in Rome that he wants the, those who hear the letter to uh, affirm, s- extend the greeting. Um, there's a lot of details there. I don't know that we want to go into them in the time we have, Ken. Um, I do think verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss, needs some, uh, just a little bit of discussion because that really, when you think about it, has become a central part of the Christian faith from the very beginning, it's in every liturgy, it's in the Mass, it's in the Eastern liturgy, mm-hmm. but it was even more of a, of a common expression of greeting, between. I believe it's what led to in in Europe where you have the kissing of the cheeks, you know. In Europe, mm-hmm. well, that mm-hmm. probably came from this Catholic tradition.
1: It's possible to read Marcus verse sixteen. Uh, in a way that we might not initially read it. If you look at it again, it says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. In other words, <clears throat> what, they, what Paul may be saying here is that just in the way that you greet one another with a holy kiss uh, in your life, so the, all the other churches of Christ outside of Rome are greeting you with a holy kiss as well. And that's the sign of peace, right? The signum pacis, as we Called in Latin. In other words, it originated in the liturgy, the holy kiss originates in the liturgy as a way of obedience to our Lord's command that if you come to the altar of God and you remember that you have something, your brother has something against you, first go and be reconciled to your brother and then come back and offer your sacrifice on the altar. That's what the greeting is in the Mass. The sign of peace or the holy kiss is a way of saying, I am at peace with my brothers and my sisters. But what I think what Paul is saying here in verse 16 is, let that liturgical act of the sign of peace overflow into every part of your life Mm -hmm. to be at peace with everyone. Don't let it just be limited to an hour a week or an hour a day in, in Mass, in liturgy bring it out into everything and let there be peace among all of the churches as well, which is really why we exist as the coming home network is to bring peace to Christendom again by asking our brothers and sisters to consider coming home to the Catholic church where we can be one within the church, which of course leads right on to Paul's exhortations or warnings in verse 17 about schisms and dissensions.
0: Well, before we jump into that, Ken, as you were talking, I think there's one other thing that in verse 13 through, three through 16 that we need to address because I can hear some people say, no, wait a second. You say there's one church that Christ established in the Catholic Church, and that all the other churches that are broken away are schismatics, which we're going to talk about in 17. But yet Paul is saying in verse 5, read also the church in their home, where he talks about all these different gatherings of christians yeah. around these people greet those who belong to the family aristobus you know the, you know my all these people that are gathered the saints that have gathered in their home uh, and then in verse 16 all the churches of christ greet you and ken you and i both know that many have taken this to mean that originally there were all these independent churches and communities, the Johannine, the Petrine, the Pauline, all the difference, those around Apollos, these different worlds. In fact, one particular theologian um, that's connected with the tra- many translations, of early church fathers, promotes the idea that there was all this great freedom in the early churches, all these independent churches that got along just dandy, until, uh Constantine imposed a, quote, orthodoxy at Nicaea, and then all of a sudden all this freedom and creativity was set aside and and a template was dropped on and forced on the church that squelched its creativity.
1: Yeah, well, some some uh, historians would say that about Constantine. Others would go back. I would even go back further and say something like, uh, "What happened in North Africa with Cyprian? Because Cyprian is trying to corral everybody into his own church rather than recognize legitimate diversity." This is the balance between diversity and unity. And yet, when you go back and you look at this text in Romans and also in First Clement. Uh, which uh, is available in translations and one of the translations that I did as well as others as well. One thing it seems to me is very evident is that there was these all these individual churches, but there was a sense of unity about them all. Now think about this chapter 16 for just a moment. Paul says in verse 5, uh, greet the church that is in their house. And and if you look, go over to Rome today, over by the Colosseum, there is a church of St. Clement. Now, it is very reasonable to assume that this church, which is not a big church, is probably not that much bigger than my house in terms of, you know, width and breadth. But you look at The church, and it's layered from the first century to the fourth century up to the 12th century. So there's these layers of the churches there. In other words, that church could very well have been a private home. And people think, and some of the experts think that it was, in fact, a private home of a somewhat wealthy Roman during the first century. And so when he says, greet the church that's in her house, perhaps. Some of the more wealthier members of the church opened at their homes, and that's where the church met. But that didn't mean that they were independent of a church that was in another part of the city. In fact, the fact that Paul is writing to the church of Rome means that all of these individual churches around Rome considered themselves to be a part of that one larger church in the metropolitan area What's that of quote, Rome.
0: quote? that quote, Ken, from, is it from Irenaeus of Lyon? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, in against heresies, where he talk about the German churches and all the churches, all the mm-hmm. churches plural, that mm-hmm. have to unite with that one church, that great church.
1: Well, if you, if 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 I may, uh, Marcus, let me just read very quickly. This is from Book One of Against Heresies from Saint Irenaeus, late second century. This is Book 1, Chapter 10. The Church, dispersed throughout the world to the ends of the earth, received from the apostles and their disciples the faith in the one God. And then he goes and he practically quotes what we know as the um, the Apostles' Creed. But then he goes on and he said the Church, having received this preaching and this faith, as we just said, through, was disper- though dispersed in the whole world, diligently guards them as living in one house, believes them as having one soul and one heart, and consistently preaches, teaches, and hands down as through one mouth. For if all the languages of the world are dissimilar, the power of the tradition is one and the same. You see? So there's that was that's what gave birth to the idea of Europe as the Corpus Christianum, the Christian body, that is, that we're all united. I think there's just no doubt. When you look at Scripture and take it seriously, when you look at the early church, people said all these churches that are spread from, you know, the eastern Jerusalem down to Alexandria, up into Rome, and even into Germania— that all of these churches are really one church because they have one faith. That's the beauty of Catholicism.
0: I was just reading recently a, 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 a biography of of bon, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which I just love, absolutely love the biography as well as I like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But he was being critical of the modern historical critics of the Scripture of his own day. He studied under Harnack and, and us group, and he was being critical, and he was saying that they seek to find christ but in the end they only find themselves oh wow you know the christ that they they work through scripture and they're looking for defining christ and they find themselves Uh, they put christ in their own image and i think that applies here ken that people look back into these scriptures and they find these words about all these churches and they read back and they only find the, the churches of today
1: i wonder if pope benedict had read Bonhoeffer because in his three books on Jesus, this is what he says. He says the Jesus they were seeking to find in the Bible is just a Jesus of their own mind. It's a Jesus of their own reflection. And you know, Marcus, it's not because we're better than they are, better people. What protects us from re- projecting onto Jesus what we want Jesus to be. The only answer to that is to be members of the whole church, to allow our own minds to be formed by a wider spectrum of things, both historically and in our own contemporary church. It's only the bigger church that protects us from reconstructing Jesus in our own image to keep from
0: having dissensions and difficulties. Paul says in verse 17, I appeal to you, brethren, to take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties and opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by fair and flattering words they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. For while your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. I would have you wise as to what is good and guileless as to what is evil, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our lead, George Jesus Christ, be with you." Now, Ken, we only have a minute or so. We'll come pick this up next week again. But how about your thoughts in closing on this little section he's just said here?
1: It's incredible how this is paralleled by the problems that we find in the mid-second century in North Africa with St. Cyprian. And Cyprian says the power of the gospel is um, damaged by the disunity, the schism, the scandals that are going on. And what's one of the greatest scandals? Marcus, I, I, from my, you know, reading of Scripture and from church history, I think the greatest scandal of Christianity is not, you know, bad priests. It's not the bad lives of Catholic Christians or other Christians, the greatest scandal is the disunity of Christianity, Mm. that you have all these disparate and contradictory voices that are speaking. Paul is calling us back to unity.
0: Ken, we're going to pause there. We'll pick up next week, those of you that are listening to us, we're going to start next week with verse 17 because I really want Ken to share with you what he's been discovering in his own translation of Cyprian. We're gonna look at that in relationship to this call to unity, the dissensions, the difficulties and how they apply today. We'll close up and what I'd love is encourage some of you to write us some emails. We've got a whole hour next week. We're gonna close this and talk about some of our favorite verses of Romans and maybe in conclusion, what Romans says specifically to us today to live our lives in the world which God has called us to live. Ken, thank you for your partnership and thank all of you for joining. Go to deepinscripture.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. We'll see you next week.